Our reading is taken from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through to 21. Now, one commentator introduces this passage by saying, Paul is so overcome in writing this letter to the Ephesians that he breaks off to kneel in prayer for them. This is one of the most inspiring passages of Paul's letter showing how Christ takes residence in the believer, making his home in our inner being. Paul prays that the Father would strengthen his children through his spirit so that Christ may dwell in us. Ephesians 3, verse 14. For this reason... I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, for ever and ever. Amen. So Paul says, For this reason I kneel before the Father. That's how he introduces his prayer at the end of Ephesians 3. But actually he's picking up there on something he started to say at the beginning of Ephesians 3, before he got sidetracked into talking about how God had called him to be an apostle to the non-Jewish world. So chapter 3 starts with Paul saying, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then he was going to go on to say, I kneel before the Father, but he breaks off. Then he picks it up again at the start of verse 14, at the beginning of tonight's reading. And for us, as we look at this prayer in Ephesians three fourteen to 21 it means if we want to find out why Paul was kneeling before the Father, we need to go right back to the end of chapter 2. Because there he addresses the church and tells them that in the Lord, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. That's why he prays as he does at the end of chapter 3. And that's also why I think his prayer is such a faith filled prayer because it starts with a vision of what God is doing 
God is building this diverse group of people, Jews and Gentiles, who normally would have nothing to do with each other. God is building them together to make a temple. A holy place where God lives by his Spirit. A place where God is at home. Not a building made of fantastic stones and ornate decorations, but ordinary people who welcome God into their midst. God is putting all the members of the church together to construct a dwelling place where God will live and be at home by his Spirit. That is the inspiration, that's the motivation, that's what's behind Paul's prayer. And it's a good place to start. Because often when we pray, or at least when I pray, I mustn't generalise about how you pray, but often when I pray, I'm starting with the problem. Lord, there's this issue and I can't see my way round it and it's really bad and, and please, please would you get involved. And we start with the things that confront us. We focus on what's wrong or what needs doing. Paul starts with what God wants to achieve. With what God is about. With what God's purposes are and makes that the basis of his prayer. That's why his prayer is so full of faith. That's why his prayer is so worshipful, because he's taken up in God's purposes. And so it's not the kind of prayer where someone is pleading with God as if they're asking for something that God really doesn't want to do, because it's way down on his priority list. No, Paul is tapping into God's agenda. He knows what God wants to do. He can see what God is doing. And he's simply asking that the church might be in the right place to accept and embrace all that God has in store for them. Christ might dwell in their hearts through faith. Christ does that already, but more. More evidently, more apparently, more fully. Paul knows that God is building his church so that these people would become the place where God makes himself at home by his spirit. And Paul asks, so what would that look like in practice, actually? For God to fill his people with his presence, as God from time to time filled the temple. And his prayer flows out of that vision. Lord, what would it be like if your people manifested the fullness of your presence and the fullness of your glory, how would that be? Lord, would you, would you make that a reality in our experience? And it's a good way to pray. He takes the phrase, you know, God making his dwelling among his people by his spirit, building them into a dwelling place. Just praying that through, what would that look like in letting prayers flow out of that? And it's a good way to take a picture or a phrase Thy kingdom come. What would that look like? What does that mean? Turn it over in your mind and let prayers flow out of that. You are the light of the world. Jesus says that is who we are. What does that mean? What does that look like? How do we pray in the light of what Jesus says? You are the body of Christ. How does that work in practice? What does it look like? These things that are true, we pray and ask that the truth of them would become apparent in reality and use those phrases as a basis of your prayers for the church and the world. It's about asking God 
to make real in our experience what we know he wants to do through his word. What we read here, Lord, can we see that here or out there? Because we're tapping into God's agenda and we're asking him to do it. As he prays, Paul's requests are not driven then by the needs of those for whom he prays, but by the abundance of God's resources. So he doesn't just pray, Lord, strengthen your people. He says, Lord, strengthen your people with power, through the Holy Spirit, in accordance with the abundance of God's glory. The kind of praise gets built into the prayer and says, Lord, this is... This is what you want to do. Lord, would you do it abundantly and fully in accordance with your glory and your power, in accordance with your Holy Spirit, taken up with who God is and what God can do and wants to do. And that infuses his prayers with faith and with vision. He prays that the church would be strong and they're going to need to be strong if Christ is going to dwell in their hearts with faith because the power of the divine glory can be quite overwhelming, actually. If the fullness of God is found in Christ and the church is filled with Christ and the fullness of God and this is the fullness of God that fills the entire universe then you are clearly trying to fit a court into a pint pot but that's what Paul's vision is that the fullness of God that fills the universe would would be encapsulated within Christ and that it would fill his people and Paul is aware that, that God is doing this Paul is aware that his his prayer is is trying to capture what is immense and make it graspable and understandable. That's why he talks about having the power to grasp how wide and long and and high and deep. What dimensions is he talking about here precisely? The NIV talks about him referring to the love of Christ, which is immeasurable and which surpasses knowledge. Or he could be referring to the presence of God, which knows no limits. But he's asking for the impossible here, asking that they should be able to understand something which is beyond understanding. To know and comprehend what is unknowable and beyond comprehension. And it doesn't bother him, because if even a fraction of what he asks for comes to pass, the results will be absolutely amazing for the church. But he just has such a a vision of the greatness and the glory and the grace of God, and he's taken up in that. He just asks, Lord, you know, flood your church with the reality of who you are. What would that look like? Wouldn't that be amazing? And he's taken up in his prayer with that vision, and as he writes his prayer down, we catch a glimpse of what he's all about. We catch a glimpse of the God he's talking about. We catch a glimpse of what God can do and wants to do among us as his people, as we are filled to overflowing with his presence by the Holy Spirit. And what does that look like in practice, actually? What does a church overflowing with the presence of God look like? Well, the most telling sign of the presence of the divine glory dwelling in the midst of his people is that, as Paul puts it, we should be rooted and grounded in love. That's what the fullness of God looks like. And you might think, oh, that's a bit disappointing, really. I thought it might be something a bit more dramatic or exciting or or fantastic than that. Well, 
Sometimes it can appear a bit mind-blowing and fantastic and exciting, but the basic and the most essential ingredient of the genuine presence of God is love. The rest of it is window dressing. It's love which is the essential ingredient. The 18th century American revivalist preacher Jonathan Edwards talked about religious affections being grounded in love. Religious affections are what incline our hearts away from loving ourselves towards loving God. And they have their origins in what's been described as an infusion of God's being and beauty. Edwards lived in a time of great revival, a time of the sovereign spirit of God creating new life amongst his people, renewing his church. And he was very concerned about it. So what is genuine? All this stuff going on, catching the headlines. You know, what actually is the work of the Spirit of God and what isn't? What's the litmus test? What's the hallmark of God being at work? And he was very concerned to distinguish true affections from intellectualism on the one hand and emotionalism on the other. If all you have of God is a reasonable and notional understanding of him, that will deteriorate into an abstraction, leaving you as nothing more than an indifferent, unaffected, even nonchalant spectator. If all you have is a cerebral understanding of God up here, you end up just watching and analysing what is going on without being engaged at a personal level with it. Conceptual agreement with doctrines without personal heartfelt commitment cannot give any meaning to a personal faith. It's no good reciting the creed religiously and correctly unless your heart is taken up in the truth of what those words express. Equally, he was aware of the power of the emotions and was concerned of how a number of profoundly religious experiences could be expressions of emotionalism rather than the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. So he exercised a strong level of caution in assessing whether many phenomena associated with revivals were genuine signs of the Spirit or not. And the language is a bit old-fashioned, but the things he listed about, you know, well, these might be true, they might not, but they're not necessarily genuine. He talked about highly raised affections, bodily experiences, talking a great deal about religious matters, getting other people excited quoting scripture, moving other people to emotions of love, many and various displays of emotion, following a particular religious routine, being excessively zealous in carrying out one's duties, a strong verbal emphasis on praise and worship, inspiring confidence in others, having a remarkable and touching testimony. Make no mistake, all these are tremendous things, but they are not necessarily genuine signs that the Spirit is at work. Because they might just be emotionalism. People getting swept along and imitating what they see other people doing, getting carried away in the heat of the moment. These are things that happen when revivals come, but they are not the sign of the Spirit at work necessarily. So if these things didn't count as signs of the presence of God among his people, what did? And for Jonathan Edwards, it was all about Christian practice. That is the best sign or manifestation 
of the true godliness of a professing Christian to the eye of his neighbours. You want to see how sincere people are in their faith? Look at how they live. You want to see evidence of the Spirit of God at work in people's lives? Don't look at the exuberance of their worship on a Sunday. Look at the kind of people that they are Monday to Friday. That was his comment. So the 12 criteria he thinks are genuine are signs of the presence of God in his people are these. Spiritual, supernatural and divine influences. A recognition of God's excellence and of the loveliness of the moral excellency of divine things. The enlightenment of the spirit. A reasonable and spiritual conviction of judgment. Something he called evangelical humiliation, by which he means a deep-seated repentance in response to the gospel. A change of nature. The dove-like spirit and temper of Jesus Christ. The softened heart accompanied by a tenderness of spirit. What he called beautiful symmetry and proportion, which I take to be a reference to a well-ordered life. Longing after spiritual attainments. Exercising fruit in Christian practice. Elizabeth mentioned the fruit in her prayers earlier. Bottom line, what counts is not the elation that comes from extraordinary religious experiences. It's a change in one's own nature and disposition to become more Christ-like and thereby more loving. All that's worth bearing in mind and taking on board as we reflect on Paul's prayer and consider what Brighton Road Baptist Church might look like if we were all visibly filled with all the fullness of God. And I'm sure we would have the most fantastic worship ever. People would be powerfully and visibly affected and we would hear some amazing testimonies. But the rubber would only hit the road when people came to look at the kind of people we are outside of a Sunday worship service. At home, at work, in the car, in church meetings. Because the sign of the presence of God among his people is simply that we should be rooted and grounded in love. And nothing else will do. Clearly we have, all churches have, a long way to go. And you may want to add your name to the list of people who over the years have complained to me that your sermons talk about the church being like this and actually I look at the church and it's like that. And as minister over the decades, I'm far more aware than most people of the faults and failings of the church and getting bogged down in those can be quite destructive. But that's why Paul's prayer is so important. Not just for me as a Baptist minister, but for any of us who belong to a church which has its faults and failings, as they all do. Because if we get sucked too far into what is wrong, and we become angry and upset, we become part of the problem ourselves. We need to break out of that and look up to the God who renews his people, who calls us to be what we are and enables us to be changed, to become more like him. If I were to say, all you need is love, with some justification you could accuse me of echoing a naive naive optimism 
that flourished and died all too quickly in the late 1960s. And yet actually, without love, we are nothing. We are nobodies, as Paul forcibly reminded the Corinthian church. So to say that love is the most important thing about the church may sound dreadfully banal, but it is still a fundamental truth for all that. Because if God wants to fill his church, to overflowing with his presence, then the sign that he is doing so will be a deep-seated, genuine, selfless, loving and forgiving and serving and giving to others, which is the nitty-gritty of living out our faith in practice. And of course that's hard, but that's why we need to pray. Because it's God who brings that change about. And when we look up, what do we see? We see the limitless resources of God's love and grace and mercy and glory. And that inspires us to pray because we're asking the God for whom nothing is impossible. So let me close with some words taken from Ben Witherington's excellent commentary on Ephesians. Some of the words are his, some of those are quoted from somebody else. Knowing and understanding the love of Christ requires being rooted in that love, experiencing it, indeed being grounded in it. One can grasp it only through experience. And even when one experiences it, one is left groping for words to describe it. The ultimate goal of being rooted in love and grasping its meaning is to be filled in all the fullness of God. Grasping and experiencing God's love is the key to receiving the full presence of God into one's life. As believers are strengthened through the Spirit in the inner person, as they allow Christ to dwell in their hearts through faith, and as they know more of the love of Christ, so the process of being filled up to all the fullness of the life and power of God will take place. Paul seems to envision a threefold filling. Christ is filled with God. The church is filled with God in Christ. Then partly directly, but perhaps also partly through the church, Christ fills the cosmos. Then indeed Christ will be all in all. Let's allow that vision to inspire our prayers and our lives. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you delight to make your home among us as your people. We come here tonight to praise and worship you because you are present with us and you make us your temple. And Lord, the fullness of your presence and the wonders of your glory 
are revealed first and foremost in selfless and forgiving love for each other. Because then we reflect your image. So forgive us when we get it wrong. Deliver us from self-satisfaction, thinking that we're actually doing rather well. Humble us in your presence that we might be prepared to serve each other. Empty our hearts of ourselves and fill us with yourself. That you would govern our thoughts, reign in our hearts, speak through our speech and direct how we live. And Lord, so fill us with your glory that it might be evident to others and they might be drawn to your light through our work and witness for you. In Jesus' name, amen.